Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Broadcasting from the Morton studio, I'm Darren Hefty along with my brother Brian. We are going to be talking about a micronutrient that uh, doesn't get enough play. Now, I know there are some farmers that will call in and ask us about copper, but when we look at soil tests, we see quite a few of them. I'd say more times than not, I'd say it's more than 50%, where we look at them and say, hmm, you're short in copper. Uh, what are you doing about that? Now, it not, it's not always like the yield limiting factor. There's sometimes bigger fish to fry. There's, oh, wow, we're really short in phosphorus or potassium or something like that. But we do see a lot of soil tests where guys are doing a pretty good job on ENK and even sulfur. And then we start looking at some of those micros saying this is probably your next yield limiting factor and copper could certainly be one of them. So if you've listened to our show much over the last few years, you know that we have been doing one acre soil test grids and comparing those soil tests to yield. Well, one of the big things that we've learned is just the ratios of different nutrients make an absolute difference in yield. Now, we've been looking at corn and soybeans. I can only assume a lot of these same things are going to apply to most other crops, but I don't have the data for that. Uh, although there are other people that have worked on this one thing. Let me talk to you about phosphorus versus copper. So here's where I'm going with this. First year we did our, and we had probably, I don't remember, 1,500, 2,000 grid points. So we're talking lots of data, not just a few little strip trials. Okay, so we have all kinds of data to prove that you know what? Higher levels of copper on our farm meant higher yields. So I'm excited, of course. So what do we do? We put on just a little bit more copper. Very next year, you know what our data says? The less copper, the higher the yield. And I go, oh, we learned nothing. What did, what did we do? What's going on here? I'm, I got to figure this out. So I dug into the data more and it didn't take very long. I just looked at, well, what are all the different nutrients that interact with copper and what else could have happened in our soil? Well, what we had decided, because we found out in that first year that a whole bunch of these micronutrients paid, that basically we needed to get our levels higher. So we did. Well, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm kind of a cheapskate. And so I just said, well, our phosphorus levels are really good, so we can get by with a little bit less. Well, that was stupid. And I found out real fast, the phosphorus to zinc ratio, that's a real thing. Just like the phosphorus to copper ratio, that's a real thing. And I could show that, and we have at our soils clinics, just showing it. the problem wasn't the copper that, that second year. The problem was the phosphorus to copper ratio. We had cut back on our phosphorus, and that was dumb. So anyway, where I'm going with this is if you want higher yields, you can't just focus on N, P, and K, because when you do, there is an inverse relationship with phosphorus to zinc and phosphorus to copper. In other words, if you are all of a sudden getting your phosphorus to copper and phosphorus to zinc ratios way out of whack, your yield goes down, not up. So that's why sometimes people are frustrated because they go, I put on more fertilizer and it, it didn't gain me yield. In fact, I'm going backwards. Well, let's look at more than just N, P, and K. So our topic today is copper. Copper is very often talked about as the disease nutrient. We know that you have to have really good levels of copper in your plant if you want to have good disease tolerance. But it does a whole bunch of other things besides just give you better disease tolerance. We'll talk about those as we go throughout the show today. But right now, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's the mailbag! All right, Brian, I got 
four fields here. They're grouped up by tabs. And this comes from Michael. He said, guys, we're down uh, in the Lubbock, Texas area and uh, got four different fields here. Three of them are subsurface drip irrigated. One of them's pivot irrigated. And we're working on these soil tests. Uh, I know you like one acre grids. We're using just five soil tests per field at this point, just to, to kind of understand them a little bit. Uh, but just kind of curious what you think. We've got some higher pHs. We've got some heavier CECs. Uh, what are some of the things that you'd start addressing? Okay, well, the first thing when we talk about five samples per field, yes, you're right. We really do like very small grids or zones. If you want to run zones, that's fine. But if your zones are also 10, 20, 30 acres, I can almost guarantee, I can't 100%, but I can about 99% guarantee you there's variability in those zones. Get them smaller and you'll figure that out. And you really only have to do that one time and you'll see that variability that's out there. But let's talk specifically about his soil tests here. Okay. And his we, goals, oh, go he ahead. said, I'd like to improve our soil health and increase our profitability out here. I think pretty much everybody's going to be in agreement with that. That's what we're all shooting for. One of the big problems that we see though real fast. And by the way, Darren took a lot of notes and and jotted them down, kind of summaries on some of these things, because some of this data was hard to read and everything. So Darren looks like put a lot of work into this. But I can tell you in two seconds, one of the biggest problems you got out there, excess sodium. That's a problem. Your sodium levels are... And, and it are, was pretty consistent. So I know we yeah. talk about smaller grids, but even on big grids, every single one of them had a pretty similar result. Yep. So you got to figure out some way to flush that sodium out of the ground because here's what's going to happen to you. You're in the range, you know, and your fields are in the range of 2% to 6%. So your yield's already getting hurt right now, but your soil's not dead. The problem is if you don't do something to address this, over time, maybe by the time your kids farm this ground or grandkids farm this ground, if it continues at this pace, the soil will be dead. And, I mean, we don't want that. That's absolutely going, I mean, that's the opposite of what you want to accomplish out there. So we would just say, you got to address that. So it's taking a look at your water source, maybe getting a lower sodium water source, if at all possible. Uh, number two, improving the drainage. And you've got some heavy soils here. We're talking 20 to 30 CEC. You probably need drain tile out there. And then to turn that sodium into a salt, you're going to have to have sulfur. So you're going to need high rates of sulfur over the next 10 to 20 years to get the sodium from as high as 6% down to one or less, that's where it needs to be. Other big issue that we see, your phosphorus levels are really, 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 really low, like five parts per million or less. So you need lots of phosphorus out there. And then just start taking a look at some of the micronutrients like our topic today, copper, and making sure that your phosphorus stays in ratio with some of those micronutrients like phosphorus to zinc and phosphorus to copper. To talk about copper on today's program and take your calls and questions at 844 44 Ag PhD. Your crop deserves the best, not just a contender. Choose a Champ brand fungicide from New Farm for proven performance in the formula you prefer. Champ Formula 2 Flowable offers exceptional mixing and stability in a liquid copper. Champ Ion comes supercharged for superior coverage in a dry formulation. Any way you turn, New Farm has the copper solution you can win with. Put a champ in your corner at newfarm.com slash uscrop. 
When we told growers that New Bear Premium Trivolt herbicide for corn delivers visibly clean fields for up to eight weeks, they were a bit skeptical. Um, we'll see how it works. So we decided to prove it. We set up cameras in multiple cornfields, treated them with Trivolt, and filmed for 24 hours a day. For eight weeks, we saw a variety of weather conditions, and Trivolt worked. See for yourself at trivoltinaction.com. Trivolt is a restricted-use pesticide. Consult your state pesticide regulator for specific restrictions. Read and follow pesticide label directions. You won't want to miss this year's Ag PhD Field Day with guided tours of our extensive research plots, world premieres of the latest ag technologies, the highest yielding farmers on the planet, and more equipment running than ever before. The Ag PhD Field Day just keeps getting bigger and better. We'll also have great family entertainment, including a kids area, music, fantastic guest speakers, and food and drink available all throughout the day. But the best part is everything's free. Go to agphd.com to learn more for the Ag PhD Field Day, Thursday, July 27th. You can count on AgroLiquid for precision crop nutrition. When you don't get all your potash down in the fall, when weather or market prices change your management strategy, or when you want to balance your fertilizer program with micronutrients, AgroLiquid is ready with the products and application flexibility you want for in-season crop nutrition and the research-proven results you need. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton Studio today, and we are talking about a specific micronutrient as our, our main discussion here on this show. But of course, our phone lines are always open at 844-44-AG-PHD if you have an agronomic question or if you want to get involved in this discussion about copper today. Now, when we talk about copper, a lot of times people say, well, yeah, that's a big deal in small grains. I would argue it's a big deal with every crop, uh, and we've got a farmer who knows a little bit about that as well. I've got Lee Lubers. He works with the Extreme Ag Group and farms in South Dakota, as do we, but Lee farms in even a tougher area of South Dakota, a little further west from us. They normally get a little bit less rainfall than us. Lee, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm not trying to wish rain away on you, so I'm not trying to say they get more, less rain all the time. I hope you get plenty of rain this year. Uh, talk to us a little about copper. I know you've really focused on building up the soils, and you got a lot of different types of soils you guys farm out there. Uh, where does copper fit into that puzzle? Uh, we feel that copper is low-hanging fruit when it comes to fertility. Uh, it's very important in, in our operation. Uh, years ago, we saw the value in it the hard way. Uh, we had nine quarters of wheat that were all showing damage on the stems, and we lost yield 10 to 20 bushel an acre. And I'd never seen anything like it on the stems, the way they bulged out about six inches up off the ground at one of the nodes. And every local agronomist said, oh, you have frost damage. I didn't believe that. And I kept looking and looking, and then finally... I found the pictures to back it up, and uh, copper deficiency can mimic frost damage. And then about a week after I thought I had that figured out, it was the very first time on Ag PhD that you had Neil Kinsey on, and he talked about copper briefly, and that was an epiphany moment for me because he talked about what we experienced. And uh, we started addressing copper after that, and uh, small grain yields went up, Corn yields went up, and it's been beneficial for our soybeans, too. 
That is awesome. Now that sounds that sounds a little bit like a silver bullet, Lee. That there's too many good things there, but it is an essential nutrient, and that it's one that when I ask most farmers, they say, "Well, I'm putting on micros. Well, what do you put on? Zinc." I don't hardly ever hear anybody saying they're putting on copper. So it does make a lot of sense. Our crop's taking a little bit out every year. And if we're not putting it back or not being intentional intentional about managing the levels of copper, uh, I can sure see how this gets to be a problem over the years. Uh, absolutely. And uh, in our soils, as we're pushing up yields, that's when potential negatives start rearing their heads. And that's when we started experiencing it in wheat that was getting up in that 80, 90, 100 bushel range, we were experiencing copper deficiency. And we didn't experience that at 50 bushel. But as we're pushing yields up, then you start experiencing it and realize you need to address it. And it actually helps other nutrients assimilate into the plant. It has so many benefits. And it's been, yeah, a low-hanging fruit. I'd, we would rather spend money on... 10 pounds of dry copper sulfate, then if you gave me a choice of that versus 300 pounds of potash, which I know those are rookie numbers for Brian, the brother, <laughs> that I would rather put the money into copper. Well played, Lee. Well played. <laughs> uh, all right. So that that, that kind of gets me to that next piece. So how do you do it? And, and you mentioned using some dry copper sulfate. Is this something that you're putting a little bit of liquid on every year? Or are you just saying, you know what, I'm just going to put the dry out there, get it done with, and, and now I'm set? Uh, as Neil Kinsey pointed out, uh, the dry method is a long-term solution. Uh in our soil test, we don't really see it moving the needle in the first year. It can take 18 to 24 months to really start seeing your levels inching up on your soil test, but we will see it in the crop uh, immediately the next year that we put it on. Yeah, that that is a great comment. I know Neil had made that on his most recent conference here last month that that a lot of times you don't see things show up on the soil test as quick as you see the crop respond to them. And and you mentioned just what a difference it made on the wheat crop, but certainly on the corn and soybean crops and, and others on your farm as well. Uh, we're speaking with Lee Lubers here. You, we talked to Lee uh, fairly often, actually, on our show because he does such a nice job. He farms a little ways west of us here in South Dakota, but works with growers across the country with Extreme Ag. Lee, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. Hey, no problem. All right, let's head out to California. We've got Abe on with us right now. Uh, Abe Isaac with AgriLiquid. How you doing, Abe? Good. How are you? Well, not too bad. Okay, so we're talking South Dakota here a little bit, and uh, we were just talking with another farmer in South Dakota that does a great job managing micronutrients like copper. How about in California? It gets to be a little tricky. you got a lot of different crops, uh, uh, some some irrigated ground, some tough weather to deal with as well, not the same exact kind of tough as here in South Dakota, of course, but maybe hot and dry, uh, <laughs> different challenges like that. Talk to us about copper. What do you What do you see with that nutrient? Well, uh, copper here, especially we have so much of the uh, permanent plantings, uh, the nuts, the stone fruits, uh, vines, and things like that. Uh, copper is used as a fungicide as, as much as anything else. So guys are putting out 10 pounds at a time, and it's getting onto the onto their plant, but it's also dropping in the soil, and, and it provides a lot of the copper that we need out here. Um, and so we that zinc sulfate again is is one of those good things that works very well for this. Uh, the row crop guys, well, they've got a different issue where they've got to 
uh, keep an eye on their copper because they're not putting on a, a fungicide spray necessarily with, with copper. So uh, they're always having to watch that. Uh, it has a big impact on, on crops such as wheat and, uh, and citrus does that. Uh, but citrus, again, is used uh, or does use copper as a uh, fungicide. So that, that they're pro they probably put 40 or 50 pounds a year on on those trees so uh they, they're really not looking to supplement beyond that but sure, sure. Know, what do you what do you see abe just curious when you see guys putting on 10 pounds at a time or or even the bigger applications than that what do you see on these soil tests for parts per million of copper it's showing up uh but we're not you can see the citrus guys especially because they're going much higher rates than that uh you can see that stuff really get out of balance and it ties other things up. So we've got to get them to, to look at putting the zinc and the iron and, and the manganese in there and, and making sure their phosphorus levels are good uh, to help balance that. Um, the guys that are going, like, like the stone fruit guys that are going in there at, at wintertime, uh, their numbers are, are, are okay. Um, and that I think that's really driven by pH and tie-up. Uh, a lot of our soils out here are in the seven plus to eight and a half. So copper does get tied up. Yeah. Yeah, it sure can. Okay. When, when you look at putting together micronutrient packages, do you see guys like you were talking about, uh, just the fungicide use and, and obviously you wouldn't yeah. necessarily need all the different micros in that mix. Uh, but I know you work no. with products like, like micro 500, for example, where, where you've got a little bit of copper in kind of in balance with, with the other micros. Do you see yeah. in some crops guys using that blended approach rather than just targeting one specific micro? Yeah, yeah, and that's what we really preach at AgriLiquid is is that balanced diet of, of that mix of different micros and small amounts, multiple applications. The plant can only take in so much at one time. Uh, we as farmers tend to be well. If one pound is good, five must be better, and hopefully we've learned that lesson that uh, that's not necessarily true. So going in there with that multi. Uh, uh, multi-nutrient product such as micro 500 yeah that that is the best way to go at it and and using the sulfate form and then also when it is protected you know from tie-up yeah absolutely yeah, we see a lot of row crop row crop guys choosing that approach to to hit all those micros and i know we we talk about micronutrients and most crops aren't removing huge amounts of micronutrients but they all need a little bit of each one so addressing those is is certainly a smart thing to do been talking with abe isaac out in california he works with agro liquid abe thanks for joining us really appreciate it you bet thank you for having me Talking about copper on today's show and taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Stay tuned. Get what you spray for. Results. Get the lasting control more corn growers trust with Anthem Max Herbicide from FMC. Apply pre-plant, pre-emergence, or early post-emergence to control tough broadleaf weeds and grasses before they cost you. For superior control with a low use rate and long residual, make the easy, high-performing choice. 
Visit anthemax.ag.fmc.com to get results. Always read and follow all label directions. It's planting season. Race against the clock season. Mistakes can't happen season. And no one helps you face it all like John Deere. Putting technology in your hands that gets you in and out of the field faster. That makes your spacing and depth more accurate. And that gives you the confidence that this season will be your best season. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gain ground. At Ag PhD, we're always looking for ways to support the ag industry. That's why at our free Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event, we're giving away more than 100 college scholarships. Plus, we'll head out into the field for hands-on agronomy sessions, including our comprehensive guide to crop scouting. This day may be geared towards younger farmers, but whether you're a college student or just want good agronomy info, this is one event you won't want to miss. Learn more and register for the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event at agphd.com. The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. From the smallest fastener to the trusses overhead, Morton leaves absolutely no detail to chance. It's how we ensure that your building stands the test of time. From concept to completion, we take pride in providing a high-quality building to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. At Corteva AgriScience, we want to keep farms healthy and productive, today and tomorrow. That's why we're investing in a robust pipeline of naturally derived biologicals. Meet Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer. It's a sustainable nitrogen fixation product that facilitates crop growth and optimizes yield potential. With the fluctuation in fertilizer prices, Nutrition N is a reliable solution. It can be used alongside your traditional nitrogen program to enhance your ROI this year. For more information, visit Corteva.us. When we told growers that New Bear Premium Trifold Herbicide for corn delivers visibly clean fields for up to eight weeks, they were a bit skeptical. Um, we'll see how it works. So we decided to prove it. We set up cameras in multiple cornfields, treated them with Trifold, and filmed for 24 hours a day. For eight weeks, we saw a variety of weather conditions, and Trivolt worked. See for yourself at trivoltinaction.com. Trivolt is a restricted-use pesticide. Consult your state pesticide regulator for specific restrictions. Read and follow pesticide label directions. listening to Ag PhD Radio talking about copper today here in the Morton studio and our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. Our first guest today mentioned a couple things that Neil Kinsey had said about copper and how they'd played out in his farm exactly the way Neil had talked about them. Uh, well, yeah, Neil's been around a long time, been a lot of fields, worked with a lot of crops, a lot of growers. Uh, tradition continues on. We've got Kyle Long here with Kinsey Ag. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, so uh, starting off the show, we had a farmer that said, man, I heard Neil say that copper would, if you were short in copper, you'd have this problem and that. And he said, man, that's exactly what I got going on on my farm. And he addressed copper of all things, and his yields went up in corn, soybeans, and wheat, just like that. He said, didn't show up in the soil test for a while, but he goes, man, that made a big difference. What do you see on copper? You look at a lot of soil tests, Kyle, from all over the place. Are we doing a good job overall on copper, or is this a problem that a lot of guys should be looking at? Uh, we see a lot of copper deficiency uh, over a majority of areas that we look at. Uh, 
if you're I mean, if you're well understood in what uh, you're looking for with micronutrients, then you have a better shot and you, you know, uh, micronutrients are being looked at a lot more closely lately. So, you know, we're not seeing as much of a deficiency as we used to, but, you know, we we want to see at least two parts per million in arable crops uh, if we're going to get the benefits of copper usage and what they actually do for the plant and the microbiology. Hey, Kyle, what do you mean by arable crops? Well, like your corn, soybean, wheat, uh, but any crop benefits from adequate copper levels. Some use actually need more than uh, you know our standard row crops. Uh, okay, but, so we like, we yeah we talk about row crops all the time here on the show, but like what crops in particular are you talking about besides the row crops that actually could benefit from more copper? Any vegetable and fruit, anything with a peel or a skin, uh, you know, we're, we're getting strengthening. Uh, you don't get as much splitting, or, uh, and it can help with mold, mildew, uh, fungus resistance. Uh, you get multiple benefits from having good adequate copper levels. But on those fruits and vegetables, like or berries or anything, we're looking for more of like 10 parts per million range because they really benefit from uh, that, that storage in there. Uh, getting the copper to strengthen those peels and those berries. So one of the things we've seen in corn and soybeans is if we don't have our phosphorus at least halfway close to in ratio with our copper, our yields go down. So when you start talking 10 parts per million, that mm-hmm. that seems, seems like a lot to me. Do you have yeah. to then do anything different with <laughs> phosphorus or any other nutrient because you're pushing the copper so much? Uh, we do have to make sure that our phosphorus is at adequate levels, at least of 500 P2O5 on our soil test if we're going to push copper that high. Because if we don't, we get too much plumpness. And then, uh, especially in vegetables and fruits, uh, we're looking at splitting at that point because we're we're getting so much, uh, you know, density in, in our fruit and grains. And we're looking for uh, that copper to help strengthen that, that, that grain or that fruit. So then if you've noticed that there, what have, what have you seen like with corn and soybeans and some of these row crops, this phosphorus copper thing that we're talking about? I mean, have you guys also seen that, that that's, that that's a big deal? Because we, we deal with a lot of these farmers that have a very ample amounts of manure and sometimes those phosphorus mm-hmm. levels get ridiculously high. So in those cases where a guy, you look at his soil test, and you go, oh my goodness, he's off the charts on phosphorus. Do you suggest he pushes mm-hmm. the copper a little more? Do you suggest he just pulls down the phosphorus? I mean, what do you do in those situations? We're more worried about overuse of phosphorus than we are of overuse of copper in that case. We're looking sure. for, you know, most people aren't going to push their copper. If they do, then it's more like five parts per million on like a corn soybean. Yeah. I don't even in a, you know, we're looking for that more for uh, disease resistance and disease pressure minimalization rather than, you know, for the benefit of what it's going to do for yield, you know, with, for yield production, uh, you know, that's, that phosphorus is more important to try and manage because if we're overdoing our phosphorus, then we have salt, uh, that hurts our sulfur uptake, that can hurt our zinc uptake. And so there's there's a multitude of different things that phosphorus can actually do if it's high. So we need to try and uh, see about, it's hard to correct phosphorus if it's uh, if it's high, but you know, we get, that's our main issue is not getting that too high first. Sure. All right, so anything else you wanna leave us with today on copper? Any important lessons you've learned over the years with copper? <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, just one thing, really. Uh, 
we know that copper is a antibacterial, antifungal. If you're especially if you're a small commercial farmer, then uh, uh, you know you're using like organic. Uh, you're an organic farmer. You're using liquid uh, copper to try and kill off some uh, mold or mildew or ergot or you know just sure. try and give disease resistance. But there can be too much of a bad thing, and if we start using too much copper then what we're really hurting is our microbiology because copper is a natural fungicide and antibacterial. So we just need to make sure that we don't put too much on that it's actually going to hurt our microbiology because that biology is what's most important for getting our nutrients up there. So I would just caution the the putting more on just because you can and just because you see a benefit. We need to actually educate ourselves in what and how much to put on based on what we actually have out there first. Okay, so one of the things, I, I got a soil test in this last year, and we showed this at one of our soils clinics, 35 parts per million of copper. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I go, oh my gosh, yeah. that's an, that's like hundreds yeah. of years worth of copper. So what's, mm-hmm. what's your top end limit where you say, ooh, this really could be harmful to the microbiology? Do you have a, a, a top end? Well, we don't we don't have a way of really measuring out the biology and what is stimulating. We're just now getting into that to where we can start measuring and understanding what what those upper limits are. But you know, we do say that somewhere around thirty parts per million is uh, going to be uh, it's not going to be as beneficial. But on raspberries or something that really needs the copper, we actually do push it closer to twenty parts per million sometimes because our our growers see less bruising and. Uh, just fungal resistance with those levels. So I'd, I'd, I don't want to tell you the wrong thing and say that, you know, 35 is too much, but honestly, the microbiology, they're in such an abundance down there that I actually, that's still a minuscule amount of copper in the grand scheme of things. I would just warrant like liquid applications would be more harmful than dry applications. Uh, more than anything else if we're going to just keep putting it on and spraying it. Uh, but I wouldn't think that 35 would necessarily be killing it and uh, killing your microbiology in droves or anything. Yeah, but, but it's, you know, least- it's just something to, if you're seeing more pressure, disease pressure and things, or you're seeing over, you know, signs of uh, copper toxicity, then that's something to warrant. But is that caused by copper or is that caused by a deficiency in something else? Yeah, that was that was one of our things. Just looking at the, this whole ratio thing, it's it's interesting mm-hmm. as you get more into it, and as we've gotten a lot more data, just seeing these different nutrients that tie together. So we we've mm-hmm. mentioned this phosphorus copper thing. Is there are there any other nutrients that you see really tying to copper where you go, ooh, we kind of if we got high levels of copper, we got to make sure this other thing is high. Um, not necessarily with that, uh, copper can affect nitrogen, but, uh, we still, as I said, we're using way more nitrogen than we are copper, but nitrogen would end up hurting copper more than vice versa. So we haven't seen copper in that, uh, those kinds of amounts to where it would warrant, uh, really any, any worrisome tie-ups or anything. Uh, it's just a matter of making sure that the, you know, we're, we're adequately putting it on whatever the crop is going to take rather than just, uh, you know, excessively using micronutrients because they, they're only needed in small amounts for a reason, you know. Yeah. Yep. So. All right. Well, again, we've been joined with uh, or by Kyle Long. He is with Kinsey Ag. Kyle, thanks a lot for the time today. Really appreciate your insight. Yeah, thank you for having me. You bet.
Yeah, this whole copper thing is kind of interesting because I, I got to be honest, when we were growing up on the farm, I don't know that we ever had a discussion about copper in terms of field applications. I, I know we didn't. No, we didn't talk about copper. And it, that's one of the reasons why a lot of fields were kind of short and we needed to add some because, yeah, in our lifetime leading up to that, I don't think we'd ever put copper on before. So it may be something you only need to address once every 10 or 20 years on your farm, but we'll talk a little more about copper and take your calls and questions right after this. When it comes to cereal disease protection, Prosaro Pro 400 SC fungicide from Bayer makes all the difference. With three effective active ingredients for overlapping control of foliar and head diseases and a flexible application window for head scab, it's formulated to lower dawn, protect yield potential, and promote superior grain quality. Prosaro Pro, the future of plant health starts here. Visit prosaropro.com to learn more. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Officer Jones calling for backup. 10-4, location? Graver back 40. Looks like we've got Palmer Amaranth, Kosha, some common water hemp. Resistant weeds. Copy that. You'll need a good tank mix partner. I'm sending tough 5 EC. Come out with your hands up! Guys, we're surrounded. Crack down on repeat offenders. Add tough 5 EC to your post-emergence tank mix. Learn more at toughonweeds.com. Always read and follow label directions. Tough is a registered trademark of Belgian Crop Protection. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. Win the war against weeds in your soybean fields with fierce herbicides from Valent USA. With three different formulations and multiple modes of action, you're sure to find the right fierce product to protect your operation from tough weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Water Hemp. Give your soybeans a strong, clean start with up to eight weeks of residual control with the powerful pre-emergence protection of fierce herbicide. Ask your local retailer or visit valent.com fierce to find the right fierce formulation for you. Always read and follow label instructions. This whole midnight ride thing is getting real. But the HPPD resistant weeds are coming. We've got Verdict Herbicide. Verdict Herbicide? Yeah, it's a non HPPD corn pre herbicide from BASF. Well, well then, get some sleep. Yeah, will do. The weeds are coming! Switch to Verdict Herbicide! Always read and follow label directions! My mom's got a new case IH tractor and it can do it all. They'll hate all day. See in the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Shift like a race car? Steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her Case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out CaseIH.com. listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We've been talking about copper, but our phone lines are always open for your agronomic questions at 
844-AG-PHD. Let's head out to Oregon right now. We've got Josh on with us with a question on wheat. Josh, how you doing? Good. How are you guys doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. What can we do for you today? A uh, question for you. I'm in a all wheat uh, can follow rotation. Um, two years ago, we bought ourselves a high speed coulter uh, to shank in some uh, anhydrous. Did the first year just straight anhydrous, and that last year we added a liquid part to it and put in thiosol with it, some sulfur. And my question is because um, we're putting, when we're seeding wheat in the fall, we're putting, I don't know, 10 to 15 pounds of anhydrous plus our uh, dry package of it's 12, 27, 18 sulfur and 1.5 zinc. Um, would it matter if we, in the fall, in the springtime when we're putting down a majority of our anhydrous, with the liquid, would it matter, I mean, ag- agronomically, if we put uh, a, a liquid 11, like 1137 in, and then with the, when we're seeding uh, a dry, like AMS, because I'm trying to get the between 15 and 20 pounds of sulfur, does that matter when you do that? So basically your question is, when should you put your sulfur on? Is that what you're after here? Or does it matter if you put your phosphorus? I mean, I, I, the reason we put the phosphorus in when we're seeding is because it seems like it helps uh, with uh, germinating the seed. But if I, put, if I put the phosphorus on in the springtime, would you still get that effect from the phosphorus or... Or okay. Well, so, you're you're in a fairly dry area of Oregon, Josh. You said you're wheat and chem fallow. Yeah, we're probably ten to twelve yeah. inches a year. Yep. So I guess let's put it this way: where you place your phosphorus, it's almost never going to move from that spot. So that's the first thing that I want to think about: is where are we placing the phosphorus? So when we talk about spring. Then, and especially if it's winter wheat, then that tells me, okay, we're not injecting it way down into the ground or anything. So I'm, I'm a little bit concerned by that. So, so how exactly would you put that on in the spring? Uh, it's, uh, right behind a coulter and it's probably, well, roughly three inches deep, three to four inches deep. Okay. Yeah. If it's three to four inches deep, that's certainly not bad. Um, and if it's a liquid, then it's going to be available sooner rather than later. Um, I guess a lot of people will put out dry just because it's cheap, and I don't have any issue with that. It's just that you got to, again, keep in mind, if you lay it on the soil surface, that's not going to do us a whole lot of good, especially in your geography. It's going to be 100 years before it gets down four inches in the ground. So anyway, yeah. um, I, I always prefer getting my phosphorus out sooner rather than later, especially in dry country. So we want to make sure our phosphorus levels are good all the time. Can you put it out in the spring in winter wheat? Sure, you can, uh, especially if it's injected. But, I mean, I'd I'd rather have it out there in the fall myself. You can try it both ways and, and, and see, but I bet you'll have better luck doing it in the fall. And as far as the sulfur goes, um, with ammonium sulfate, it's going to take some time for that product to break down. 
so if you want that, uh, I, you know, it, I, I don't mind ammonium sulfate. We use a bunch on our farm. A lot of times we will broadcast it just because nitrogen and sulfur will both move down through the ground, even with small amounts of rainfall. But I, I, I guess um, I, I, I still would come back to you can, and if it's me, I'm always trying things both ways to prove myself right or wrong but my initial reaction is i think i'd rather have the phosphorus out there in the fall so why why are why is it that okay. you're considering making this change to going in the spring um uh i mean because uh ams is cheaper than the thiosol uh, the liquid in the spring mm-hmm. one of them and yes it uh, is so that was one of them and uh that's pretty much, yeah, that's probably mostly it. And because sure. I, I mean, eventually I'd like to change my drill over to a liquid if this keeps on, the anhydrous keeps on working in this the springtime so I can just put whatever I want on the drill and just seed with liquid starters and all that stuff, but I'm just yeah. not there yet. Yeah, yeah, I got you. So, so yeah, I would experiment it with experiment with it a little bit. And we do like ammonium sulfate. Uh, like on our farm, I'll just tell you, even for our spring crops, we are broadcasting dry ammonium sulfate in the fall. So there, there's no issue doing that if you would like to do that instead. So I, I get it, though. Yes, ammonium sulfate's cheaper. It's a good product. Uh, we really like ammonium sulfate, and if you want to use it in the spring, that's perfectly fine. I have no issue using that in the spring. I'm just coming back to the phosphorus thing. I'd rather have more of my phosphorus on in the fall than in the spring, personally, so it's available for that crop uh, sooner rather than later, and especially in your very dry country. We, you, uh, Let's put it this way. Fertility for you is more important for the guy that has lots of moisture. Because if your crop starts to run short on any one nutrient, it's going to try pulling more water in and wasting your water because it's short on that nutrient, and that's how nutrients get into the plant. So we got to make sure that we have ample nutrients and we have them in balance all the time, especially starting out right away in the fall. You get that crop off to a good start, and usually you're ahead. So anyway, those are just my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, that's why I was kind of, I mean, in the back of my mind, too, is phosphorus, and I like the little bit of zinc with the seed too yep it seems like it helps it jump out of the ground a little faster yep okay so, okay no i was just curious if i mean switching from a liquid i mean change my sulfur that's liquid in the spring to a, a dry and change my dry phos to a liquid in the spring if that would make any difference but you kind of answered that. <laughs> well, yeah. And again, like with dry phosphorus, okay, that can take some more time to break down. So, I, I mean, we will usually put on some liquid, even if we're doing dry, and we're not as, at, at, we, we have a little more rainfall than you do even. So, I, I'm just saying, li- there's nothing wrong with liquid. We like it. It's just a little bit more expensive. And we, a lot of times, will supplement our dry program with liquid to make sure we have something available. Because if we get a really dry year, Sometimes our phosphorus just, it doesn't come available for a long time when it's dry. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thanks for calling in, Josh. Yep. Thank you very much. You bet. Good luck. Uh, bye. All right. Uh, we've got Lane on right now down in Missouri. Lane, how are you doing today? Good. How are you fellas doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. I, I hear you want to talk a little elemental sulfur here. I do. I do. I sent you all a sample here. I'd have been a couple weeks ago. Um, and I sent another sample here today of 
we have some farms, Missouri River Bottom Farms, down kind of kind of south of you guys, quite a ways down Missouri. And the issue we're having is that across several farms, we have really high pHs, and we understand using elemental sulfur to lower the pH, you know, at least short term. But the question I have is, I can't really find a good resource that tells you how much to apply. It seems like there's tons of information when it comes to liming and things of that nature, but when it comes to elemental sulfur and lowering pH, it just doesn't seem like you can find how to figure how much elemental sulfur is needed. Yeah, there are charts out there. We basically, at this point, have proven all the charts wrong. So there, there, there is nothing that's great for you. Um, we have certain things that we do. I'll, I'll just say this. When your pH is high, and by the way, your pH, at least in the test you sent me, didn't look that high, 7.5 to 8. Uh, and don't get me wrong. Yes, that's a little on the high side, but your average was 7.8. So what we typically talk to people about is something's out of balance in your soil. So when I take a look at your soil test real quick, and one of the things for us, it was always potassium. We raised our potassium level, our pH would come down on river bottom ground, like you're talking about, that's heavy. Um, yours is average 18.5, so that's not super heavy, but you do have a range here. You got 10 all the way to 29. So it's really variable soil. So the, the problem with elemental sulfur and with anything you're going to try to change in the, in the soil, it's going to be a lot easier in that 10 CEC than it is in the 29 CEC. So, Lane, I apologize. We're up against a commercial break. Just hang on. We'll answer your question more specifically right after this here on Ag PhD Radio. The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. From the smallest fastener to the trusses overhead, Morton leaves absolutely no detail to chance. It's how we ensure that your building stands the test of time. From concept to completion, we take pride in providing a high-quality building to last for generations. To get started on your next project, visit mortonbuildings.com. At Ag PhD, we're always looking for ways to support the ag industry. That's why at our free Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event, we're giving away more than 100 college scholarships. Plus, we'll head out into the field for hands-on agronomy sessions, including our comprehensive guide to crop scouting. This day may be geared towards younger farmers, but whether you're a college student or just want good agronomy info, this is one event you won't want to miss. Learn more and register for the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event at agphd.com. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at HeadsUpST.com. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an authority brand herbicide plus a post-application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy-duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kosha, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions. 
Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. Get your planter ready for spring with Germinator Closing Wheels from Farm Shop MFG. And now when you buy 12 rows or more, get free shipping or 20% off an end zone bin system. Offer good while supplies last, so order yours today at FarmShopMFG.com. This season, get medieval on Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia fungicide from Valent USA. Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Rhizoctonia, Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer or visit valent.com slash Excalia to learn more. Always read and follow legal instructions. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here, along with my brother Darren. We're live in the Morton studio today, just talking about copper and answering your calls and questions. So right before the break, we were visiting with Lane from Missouri, and he sent us some soil tests and just asked about sulfur and how much you'd need to lower soil pH. So, Lane, during the break here, I was looking more at your different soil tests because, let's see, you sent us 69 tests. So earlier I was talking about the average, the low, and the high out of all these 69 tests. Well, I just took a couple here as an example. The highest pH you've got is an 8. But in that spot, the, the cation exchange capacity is only 16.4. So it's kind of a medium textured soil. 85% calcium there. So it appears to me that's what's driven the pH up. But one of my big questions that I have for you is sodium. It doesn't appear at least the results I got or what you sent me, that I have any sodium readings. Did you not get sodium tested on there? Because I, I do question that when we start talking about river bottom ground and high pH. Yeah, I I actually don't know what happened there because a complete sample was ordered with everything. And sure. I, there was no sodium on there, but it, we've had done samples in the past, you know, about every three to four years that okay. ground gets sampled. It's yep. always had high pH. But past sodium levels have not been high. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe I, in the double digits of parts, you know, I mean, double digit numbers. For part per million, but the percentage yeah. being low. Yeah, okay. So, I, I mean, that's always going to be my concern. That was the one thing that I, I felt like we were missing on this test. So, anyway, I, I'll come back to we want to try to balance the nutrients out. And, like, in that spot, you only have 0 0.7 parts per million on zinc. So that's too low. Your phosphorus levels, um, what like the bicarbonate P test, you got six parts per million. Now, the, the Bray P2 test did say 49, but it's not super accurate in a high pH soil. So, I, I mean, I, I just feel like your phosphorus and your zinc are low. If you do that, that's going to help. It's going to start to help you get things on the right track. In addition to that, boron, 0 0.4 parts per million. Copper, one part per million. We were just talking with Kyle Long with Kinsey Ag about how like two parts per million, it's kind of a bare minimum. So, you know, it's some of these other nutrients here. And here, here's where I'm going with all this, Lane. 
in in our experience, you're going to get more yield benefit and more income benefit if you just first spend your first dollars on fixing all these other nutrients. Now, if you want to try to drive some of that calcium out and you want to put some elemental sulfur out there to push the pH down a little bit, you can certainly do that. Uh, what we've been doing on our farm, I'll just give you our formula on how we've done it. Uh, you don't have to use this, but this is what, what we've liked. But uh, I, I would preface this by saying it's going to vary depending on your cation exchange capacity. The lighter the soil, the less you can use, or the less you need to use, and the heavier the soil, the more you need to use. So we've been targeting 6.5 for our pH, and every 0.1 on pH we go above that, we put on 15 pounds of sulfur, and we'll do this once every two or three years. So. In other words, if I'm at a 7.5, that's a full point over 6.5, then I would uh, I would just figure, hey, I'm going to put on 150 pounds of elemental sulfur at a 7.5 pH. Challenge with that is it gets kind of expensive. And so that's why I don't normally tell the average person, oh, you know, go invest 30 or $40 in sulfur before we can first prove, hey, do we even need this? If we fix all these other nutrients, is it possible that that pH could start coming down on its own? Also understand this, that the more crop you have out there means the more roots you have, and those roots are going to kick out organic acids. They're going to, a lot of people call them chelating agents. They're trying to get more nutrients in the soil available for the plant. Well, that acid they kick out will lower the soil pH naturally also. All right, then there was one other spot that I looked at. I, I took, okay, so that was your highest pH spot. I took your highest cation exchange capacity spot of 29, so your he very heaviest ground, and what did I find there? Well, with that one, a, a lot of the stuff actually seemed to be a little bit more in balance. Now, your pH was 7.6, which really isn't that terrible, and you know, when I look at base saturation potassium, you're at 3.6%. It's pretty close to the four we're usually talking about. You got better zinc level there, 2.3. Your bicarbonate phosphorus test, uh, 19. So, I mean, all those nutrients were better. Even your boron was a little bit higher. Your copper was higher than that other spot. Your copper is actually at 3.7. So, it, where it, it just appeared to me that where you had the nutrients at least a little more in balance, your pH was a little bit lower. But anyway, I guess I'll leave it at that. That's kind of my advice for you. Unfortunately, no, there isn't any exact chart out there on how much elemental sulfur you need to lower pH. But we also will will say, hey, let's look at what could potentially have caused that pH to go high. Try to make sure that's addressed first and then go from there. And in your case, if you're telling me the sodium is fine, uh, nothing too concerning. Most of your magnesium levels are not super high. I mean, there's, you know, a little bit of stuff into the low 20s, but it's not like 30 or 40 like we've had on our river bottom ground. So there's nothing, you know, it just stands out to me going, oh, wow, that's a ma massive problem. Just looks to me like we need a few more of these nutrients, and I think you're going to be okay. No, that's... That's what I was kind of looking for. The field, yeah, the, the field itself will put out good crops. It's not that it's struggling for yield by any stretch. It's just we're looking at it as what's where's the best place to spend the money Absolutely. on the fertilizer if we're going to spend it. Is it better to spend it on more nutrients or is it better to spend it on elemental? 
Yep. It kind of sounds like maybe it should be a two-step approach of maybe yes. a little bit of both. Yep. So. Yes, definitely. And here's the other thing, and I am glad that you have all these samples, but now when you look at these samples, you can see the tremendous variability, right? So, And I'm sure you're seeing some variability in yield, too, when you have soil pH, or I should say cation exchange capacity from 10 all the way to 30. Uh, that's really light soil to really heavy soil. We have some of that exact same thing in the same field. And so we're trying to manage those things a little bit differently. But then also just looking at how much some of these nutrient levels vary. So just for example, we've spread a fair amount of copper here in the last few years. Once you realize the importance, well, you have some areas that are pretty darn good. So, I mean, you're as high as 3.7 parts per million. That's not bad, but you're also as low as 0.5. So in other words, you got spots in the field where you need to spend the money on copper and other spots where you don't. So it's great having this information. So now you don't waste the dollars in the areas where you already have good fertility levels. Yep. Yep. No, that's, that's what we were thinking. So, but no, that's, that's the only question I really had for you all. And I appreciate you guys helping me out. You bet. Thanks a lot, Lane. Good luck. Yep, but. All right, Darren. What else do you right, have Brian, for questions here uh, in the mailbag? I got a question here from Josh, and he said, We're down in Oklahoma. We've got very light soil, CECs somewhere in the two or three range. And he said, So I got a couple of questions for you here. Uh, first of all, is your CEC for nitrogen recommendation of 10 times the CEC? <laughs> that's how much nitrogen you can hold. <laughs> so, so if I'm understanding correctly, I can hold about 20 pounds of N per application, uh, and okay. I do have irrigation. So here's my question. So I'm thinking about installing fertigation. Would that be a reasonable solution? Absolutely. And can I also spoon feed the other nutrients as well? Would yes. that be a good recommendation? Well, with some of them, yes. So every time you put out nitrogen, if you put out just a little bit of sulfur and a tiny little bit of boron, for example, would that be beneficial? I'm positive that it would because we're talking CEC here of two to three. So it's pure sand that he's dealing with. And now there are other things that will stay in that soil much, much better, like phosphorus, zinc, and copper, for example. Well, those levels, I mean, the phosphorus, you've got some areas where you're in pretty good shape, uh, but the zinc needs to be corresponding to that, and so does the copper. And your copper levels are at 0.2. Copper was our topic for the show today. So, you know, that's one of the things that I'm going to be addressing. In addition to that, you got a couple spots where the soil pH is terrible. Now, the great thing with pure sand is you only need a little splash of lime out there. Well, and that's, and the, that's the question, is about the pH. He said, do you, he said, we recently switched labs. It's our, we're going with Midwest Labs now because you guys do that, and so we thought that would be a good way to communicate. And he said... That seems low. We haven't seen results below 5.5 before. Uh, do you think these are accurate, and what would you do to – how much lime would you need, do you think? Okay, well, let me let me say this. When we have extreme drought, it is possible that your soil pH could be a little bit lower than normal. Probably only to a half a point, though. Your lowest here is 4.7. So is it possible that could be a 5.2? Sure it is. But either way, the pH is too low, whether it's 4, 7, or 5. Two. One more thing. The last thing you said, do you think trying to build CEC by building organic matter is a lost cause in sandy soil in Oklahoma? It's not a lost cause. I'm going to be working on it, absolutely. Are you ever going to get your levels to the 5% I want to be at? No, but probably not. But you still have to work on it. It's still beneficial. Hey, great questions there. Thanks for sending in the soil test. We really appreciate that, Josh. Thanks to you for listening to today's program. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.